Hello again. If you're part of King's Kids, you can head on out to the class upstairs. And if you would like to hear the sermon in Spanish, you can tune in to the number on the screen. A couple weeks ago, we talked about corporate worship and the importance of being here for the corporate worship service, the whole service, from the beginning to the end, right? Well, last week, no one showed up. That was the week after I gave that message. And last week, we talked about something really, really even more important than that. Well, equally important, depending on which day I was talking about it. We talked about church commitment or church membership, I guess you could say, because we are opening up our membership roles and we are going to be enrolling some new members. If you weren't here last week, I highly encourage you to listen to that message um, and just get an idea of, you know, whether regardless you, you want to be a member or not, it's a good thing for you to know where we're at and what our heart is as it relates to church commitment and also as it relates to us as a local church being used in the community and really throughout the world uh, to impact the kingdom of God. So I encourage you to do that. It's right up on the site or on the podcasts. And so today, what we're going to be doing is going back into Hebrews. And so we're in Hebrews chapter 11, and we're talking about what they call the Hall of Faith, where the writer of Hebrews goes through all the powerful examples of faith from the very beginning of the Bible, from Abel and all the way through. Now we are, we are in Moses. We're almost halfway through all the people that he starts to talk about. And if you remember a couple of weeks back before we did the church worship and then the, the membership last week, before that we were talking, we introduced this new character, uh, which we're all so familiar with, and his name is Moses. And we talked about how God can use some of the most really seemingly insignificant people and really in some of the smallest itty bitty ways to really make a grand impact for his kingdom. And the last time we talked, we talked about Moses being born and being lovely in the sight of God. But at that time, the Pharaoh at that time in Egypt was being threatened by the growth of the Hebrew nation within Egypt. So he started to not only uh, put them into slavery and into bondage, but as they started to grow even more, what they did is they started killing all the newborn children. And this is right at the time Moses was born. And so Moses was protected well, by a group that he didn't even know. First, it was the Hebrew midwives who were faithful to God. They didn't fear the king. And instead of killing these newborns, they let them live. And the very next verse after that was Moses' parents, seeing he was a lovely child or a beautiful child, which we talked about was lovely in the sight of God. They hid him for three months, and then when it got unbearable, they sent him out on the Nile, only to be retrieved by Pharaoh's daughter, who then got Moses' real mother and said, can you please nurse this child? So it's a beautiful, amazing story, not only of God's faithfulness, but of course also of faith, the faith of people, average people, great people, small people, all types of people can be used by God God is looking, searching to and fro throughout the earth, looking for those people that are, have a heart that's strong towards them. And so we're going to continue to look at Moses today. 
And we're going to look at Moses again next week in a different light. But today our passage is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24 to 27. And so I'm going to read from that. It says, By faith, Moses, when he, grown up, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. <clears throat> you know, I love watching my children play sports. I have three in sports right now. I have one playing football. I have one playing, well, about to start playing basketball. And I have one in volleyball. And so I went to my daughter's volleyball game a few weeks back. I got there a little bit late. I sat down and I noticed that our team, which is called Agape, had some of the opposing players on their side of the court. It was even more confusing because they both had the same color uniforms on. So again, confusing at first, I found out that since the other team were short a few players on their JV team, our players filled in to make the teams even. It was, of course, fun to watch the game, especially since my daughter was playing, but I really found out that I had nobody to really root for, no team to cheer on. The opponents were on both sides of the court, and so were our players. Now, I ultimately made the best of it, simply you know, rooting for both teams. Even though the sense of competition was a little bit gone, I made it through, and of course we won. <laughs> In similar fashion, I know that I've spoken about this before. <clears throat> I was forced and manipulated at a young age to become a Dallas Cowboys fan. My grandmother buying me all sorts of merchandise. But I found myself doing the same thing as a kid, as a Cowboys fan living just outside of South Philly on the Jersey side. I ended up starting to root for the Eagles as well. I had, I had some neighbors, that, of course, that were really hard you know, Cal, or Eagles fans, and most of my friends were Eagles fans, so I started rooting for them until my friends had a little bit of a talk with me. Saying you can't root for both teams. That's not going to happen. Now, of course, I had to pick a team. Where would my faith settle? What team would I believe in? Well, of course, I wasn't giving up my Cowboys bedroom set and pajamas and all that. So I picked Dallas. And I still, even today, still like watching the Eagles, the Jets, the Giants. Well, maybe not the Giants. San Francisco, all this. I love watching football. I liked watching my daughter's volleyball game, regardless of what team would win. Now, rooting, here's the point. Rooting for a team or two different teams or both teams may work in competitive sports, but it doesn't work when it comes to the team of Jesus Christ. You have to pick one or the other. 
Unlike sports or any competitive endeavor, followers of Christ are in a serious battle. We're in a serious battle for souls. It's a serious war. A war that will determine where people spend eternity. It's either going to be with God in heaven or separated from God in hell. Now this war began in the very beginning, if you read the book of Genesis, and it continues through the scripture and continues even after the scriptures are closed, even to this day. The main thing determining this major factor in the war, which determines one or the other, who gets the victory, it's not physical strength, it's not worldly wisdom, it's not money. What it comes down to is the faith of the individual. We either have true, authentic faith in Christ, or we don't. Now, our text shows Moses, he came to a point in his life where he had to pick a team. Where would his faith lie? What team would he be on? Would he devote himself fully to following the way of Christ by faith? Or would he stay comfortable in the land of pleasure? Now, we too have to make this very same choice when it comes to Christ. But what does following Christ with true, authentic faith really mean? Well, it says in verse 24, by faith Moses, when he had grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Following Christ means, as I already alluded, that we have to choose sides. It's either Egypt or Canaan, the promised land. Now, I imagine this was extremely difficult for Moses. He owed his life to Egypt, particularly Pharaoh's daughter. It's crazy how the couple of verses before we see this great act of kindness by Pharaoh's daughter. And now we see Moses refuse to even be called her son. She pulled him out of the Nile. She brought his mother to nurse him and raise him. But he also remembered it was God who first called him and considered him lovely in his sight. Moses could have been and would have been king in Egypt. He was a prince. He had lots of influence, even in this time right here in our passage at 40 years old. He could have tried to deliver Israel undercover. He could have tried to influence the leadership. He could have made a case for their nation and people. He could have negotiated a deal with Pharaoh. He could have had his cake and ate it too. But he refused to stay an Egyptian. Exodus 2.11 says, Now it came about in those days when Moses had grown up that he went out to his brethren. Stephen tells us in Acts 7.25, colors this in for us a little bit, And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him. But they didn't understand. Moses had faith that he was the deliverer of of Israel, taking the people out of Egypt before he even left Egypt. 
We think of them after the 40 years in the wilderness, you know, 40 years away from Egypt, and then God calling them in the burning bush, and then him going, no, I don't want to do this, and refusing the call, and then eventually doing it. But Moses initially had the faith and wanted to deliver Israel, but they rejected him. He felt the initial call, stepped out, but God had him wait in order for his faith to be fully developed. 40 years. Moses then made the choice to be reckless with his faith because he knew he could not sit on the fence any longer. What do I mean by reckless? He said, I'm going to do this regardless of the consequences. Now, Jesus made some bold statements about the danger of sitting on the fence in regard to our faith in him. He said, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. So many times we try to negotiate with our desire to stay in Egypt. We try to sit on the fence and we try to play both sides of the fence. And we think that it's good that we're in that neutral ground. Does neutral ground even exist? Well, there's a place in the United States where it does. There's four states that come together. It's called the Four Corners Monument. Arizona, Utah, Colorado, and New Mexico, they come together in one specific spot. And this small section where they all meet is they got a little small bronze disc that's in, embedded in a larger granite disc. And the four words... Four states, I'm sorry, and the, and the words, four states, hear me in freedom under God. So there's four pairs of, of words there, two on each state, eight total. Now, in this case, you can be in all four states at the same time by standing in the center. No one can reside in all four states at the same time. You can only stand there, obviously, for a short period of time. But by doing so, you are bound to that one spot. And this is what happens when we're on the fence with Christ and Egypt. We're on neither side, but we're bound and rendered useless. Now, you may think you're free by having one foot in Egypt and one foot with the people of God. But in reality, you are still in bondage. Now, of course, I'm referring to to sin. Our love of it keeps us from fully coming out of Egypt. It keeps us in that middle ground. And when this always happens, I'm warning you, as you probably know from experience, sin always wins and dominates. C.S. Lewis wrote, there's no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch Every minute of every hour is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. The person who tries to be neutral and live in Egypt and at the same time live with the people of God is ultimately not with God and is doing exactly what Satan wants to happen. Render you useless in that neutral ground, which really isn't neutral at all. What do we need to do? We need to pick a side. 
We need to get off the fence. We need to get reckless with our faith by turning from our sin and fully joining on Christ's team. Maybe it's like with Egypt, you leave everything you love behind cold turkey. That's what he did. That's what Moses did. He didn't sit and negotiate. He just left. He said, I'm done. I'm going to go and I'm going to try to save my brothers. This is it. I'm taking that step. Maybe like Moses, it also means disappointing some people. Maybe friends. Maybe your own family members. Why? Well, all for the exceedingly abundant riches found in Christ. Philippians 3, 7, 8. But whatever things, this is Paul, who was a guy who pretty much, in terms of stature and pull and reputation, had a lot before he came to Christ. But he said, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, he goes further. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of some things, no, all things. And he counts them but rubbish, or as to get King James, dung, so that I may gain Christ. It's a very drastic change that God has required of us. But he's not going to push you off that fence. You know the truth. He's giving you, he's giving you the grace of the truth. But those ties to Egypt, those hopes of the passing pleasures, need to be cut off. In verse 25, 26, it says, Moses chose to endure the ill treatment with the people of God rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach, reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. Can we say that? For he was looking to the reward. The second point is, is following Christ by faith means leaving behind the whole life completely, yes, but mentally as well. You see, that's where oftentimes we lose the fight. We may physically have left Egypt, but our mind is still there. See, Moses gave up all he knew. He didn't know what was lying ahead. He gave up all his Egyptian hopes rather than live with himself as an imposter. His true identity was a child of God. But there couldn't be any going back with him, especially after his altercations with Pharaoh. He didn't want to make the mistake that I'm sure he knew of, that we've all heard of, and that is Lot's wife, and really Lot himself. When morning dawned and the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you'll be swept away in the punishment of the city. This is Genesis 19. God had sent two angels of the Lord into Sodom and Gomorrah to literally destroy the city. But before they did that, they were told to save Lot and his family. But at the... the the angels are urging Lot, let's go, get everybody, let's get out of here. But in verse 16, it says something very peculiar. It says, but Lot hesitated. Interesting. So the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his daughters. And for the compassion of the Lord was upon them. They brought them out and they literally put them outside the city. 
Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the city and even what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife from behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Now, Lot's wife gets all the attention here, but remember, it was Lot who hesitated first. I always wondered if this played a role in his wife looking back. You see, if you're one of those like I have been and even suffer and fight with the very same temptations every day, you fight with that preservation of the old life. I want to preserve that. Just this little, little itty-bitty thing, I just want to preserve it. What ends up happening is it then turns to salt. It becomes a monument, not the Four Corners monument, but a monument to the preservation of evil, which I believe is what we're being shown in this pillar of salt example. His wife trying to preserve, trying to look back, her mind being in the wrong place. But then Lot, too, hesitating, possibly even inspiring his wife, Maybe his wife giving him that look, but it was too late. Don't give it a thought. You got to cut it off. Even the slightest hesitation matters. Jesus warns us, remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. See, what ultimately we have to do is cut the cord. That's what Moses did. That's a phrase that means not to be dependent on that thing or that someone any longer. Cut the cord. It comes from the concept of that newborn child coming into the world completely biologically dependent on the mother. And the medical professional cuts the umbilical cord which is connected to the placenta. Now the function of the placenta is no longer needed. It was needed It provided oxygen, nutrients, and life to the baby inside the womb. But once the baby was born, its use is terminated. You know where I'm going with this. When we are born from above, we have to live by faith, and that means cutting the cord to the old life physically and mentally. It's no longer needed. It's useless. We can try to resuscitate it. However, that old person is dead. He's non-revivable. He's gone in Christ's eyes. We prop him up by keeping our mind and our actions on him. In Christ, you are new creation, Paul says. I know in our translations it says a new creation, but Paul says new creation, exclamation point emphasizing the totality of your entire life and being now being renewed. Everything is new in Christ. Everything about your life is newly created. The function of your life is being provided by Christ now, not the old organs or machinery any longer. The old machinery of the old life has to be done away with. It says Moses chose ill treatment by God's enemies and the reproach of Christ. Now, Moses didn't have the picture that, you know, of Jesus as we know him in the New Testament, but he did know the concept of the Messiah, the great anointed suffering king that would come and deliver 
and represent his people throughout the world from every nation. Moses never saw Christ, but by faith, he identified with his reproach. So whatever struggle we have, identify with that reproach that Christ had for you. How do we do this? It says Moses looked to the reward. He kept his focus on the right thing. To look to the reward, excuse me, you have to know what that reward is. The entire chapter of Hebrews is about this reward. Every one of these people had faith, not for the sake of faith, but for the sake of the promise, the reward, the promised land, the new creation, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth, the the resurrection where we are going to live free of sin and in the presence of God forever through the seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ. That's what they were looking for. With Christ, there is an immediate reward. So if you don't know Christ and you come to him for forgiveness of sins, you will have an immediate reward of peace with God. You will have an immediate reward of complete forgiveness of even the worst decrepit, dysfunctional sin that you have ever committed. You will have the love and the freedom of your Father in heaven. And the long-term reward will be you enjoying and seeing this victory visibly in Christ at his bodily return. This was Moses' blessed hope, and it must be ours as well. No looking back, physically or mentally, No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. That's Luke 9.62. Verse 27 says, By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was unseen. You know, Moses... This verse could apply actually to two things. It could apply first to Moses initially leaving Egypt because after he had killed the Hebrew or the Egyptian and it got, he got wind of it, he knew Pharaoh was after his life. doesn't say he was scared. He just knew that he would die. And so he left. And then as we're going to see, Moses, when he came back with the commission to deliver Israel from Egypt, He gave Pharaoh a lot of warnings and Pharaoh ends up losing his firstborn son and everyone in Egypt loses their firstborn, even to the cattle that they had. And Moses did not fear. He didn't run out of Egypt. He walked. And so following Christ by faith means... Third point here is moving forward and enduring despite the scary circumstances that are in front of us. It's been said that the opposite of faith is not disbelief. What's the opposite of faith? Fear. But this isn't of God. Fear is not of God when it comes to this. See, our body has a fear response and mechanism. That's from God. He's given us that. But this fear that he's talking about, what I'm talking about, is the spirit of fear as it relates to doing the things that God has called you to do. The spirit of fear that's associated with you giving up the ties to Egypt and thinking that you're not going to be able to function and live without it. 
It says, God has not given us a spirit of fear or timidity, but of power and love and discipline. The older translation says, love in a sound mind. They don't have a spirit of fear. The Holy Spirit isn't about being fearful. The Holy Spirit is about being all-powerful. The Holy Spirit is there to remind you that the victory has been won over your life, that you have been justified, that you're in the, actually in the family of God now, free from the bondage of sin that you're hanging on to. Right? If you train that, you know the story about the elephants that are trained in the circus for years with the chain. They're only able to move for years of going around and around. And then after, by the time they get into the circus, that chain is removed. But they don't know it. They just keep walking around and around. They're bound to that circle. They're not smart enough, but we are. The chain's been removed. You have the freedom to move, but you have to take the action. Imagine Moses, he just killed the firstborn, or God just killed the firstborn of every living animal, being, like I said, including the son of Pharaoh. Moses is now walking out into the wilderness with a couple of millions of people, that, but, but around actually almost two million people, not counting some of the children. Moses took his eyes off the circumstances and put them on God. He had a bullseye on his head. He was the 80-year-old front man for this whole mission. All he had was the staff and the power of God. That's all we need as well, minus the staff. Unless you want to carry a staff. But you just have, you have what you need. How did he do this? Well, how can we do it? Well, imagine here that you're in a burning building. The, bur- the building's burning down. There's smoke everywhere. You can barely see. You feel yourself around the walls and you come up to a window. You open up the window. You don't know. You can't see the ground, but you know you're high up. And you hear a voice from down below. Jump. We have you. And you say, what are you talking about? I can't even see the ground. The voice comes back again, really faint. Jump. You're going to die. You're going to perish in the fire. We have you. And you're like, jump. I... I can't even see you. Where do you want me to jump? And to who? And the voice says, it's okay. Jump. We can't, we can see, I messed that up. Jump. You can't see us, but we can see you. And that's exactly what it means with God. When we step out in faith. He wants us to jump and we don't have to see the target. We don't have to see the ground because God himself is the target. And when we jump, when we take that step, God doesn't leave us. He actually jumps with us. Deuteronomy 31.8 says, The Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. God calls us to have faith in Christ that steps out and jumps regardless of the scary circumstances. But it's not blind faith because God is the object of our faith. Your faith may require you to sacrifice the security 
of the place you're standing right now. But I'll tell you right now, if you want to serve God, it's the only way that you can do it. You can't do it by standing in the same place. In order to do what God's calling you to do, you have to take that step. You say, well, what if they miss me? What if I jump and what if I fall? What if God drops me? Realistically, what if I choose to follow Christ fully in faith, but things don't work out the way that I want? Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in a similar situation. This is Daniel 3. These men were Hebrew captives in the Babylonian exile. They were smart. They were carefully selected out of a group of of when they used to take these people uh, into exile. They would look amongst the group and they would see the most healthiest, good-looking, smart people they could possibly find. And then they would train them in the ways of Pharaoh for years, two, three years. And then if they were good enough after that, they would bring him into the service of Pharaoh. I'm sorry, Nebuchadnezzar at this time. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was a very vicious king. He was full of himself. I don't know if you've ever read the story. But these guys had done so well that they worked their way up to be actual administrators in the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar. But something happened. The king was one day decided to build a statue, presumably of himself, out of gold and all sorts of things. And he set it up in the middle of the city. And he came up with a law that they put into place that if people don't bow down to that statue, what they would do is they would play music, all sorts of instruments throughout the land. And whatever you were doing, whenever it was played, you were to stop and you were to bow down and you were to worship. Now, everyone did this besides three people, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They refused to bow down to anyone other than the Lord God himself. So, of course, some of the leaders brought charges against him before the king. They said, these men are not going to obey your decree. They're not bowing down to your image. And the king's anger burned. He had all three men brought before him, and he questioned them. This is what he said. This is Daniel 3.15. Now, if at the moment you hear the sound of all the music, and you fall down and worship the image that I have made, Very well, you'll be good to go. You won't be killed. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the furnace of blazing fire. And then he says, and what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the next couple verses, reply to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so... Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hand. But, O king, even if he does not, let it be known to you that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Their faith was immovable regardless of of what would happen, regardless of the circumstances. Oswald Chambers says, faith for my deliverance is not faith at all in God. 
Faith means whether I am delivered or not, I'm going to stick to my belief that God is love. And then he says, there are some things that can only be learned in a fiery furnace. You see, the fiery trial or the fiery furnace you're in right now is designed to get you to trust God and give it up and step out in faith. Now, these men were actually thrown into the fiery furnace, but not one hair of any of their heads was even singed. When they were in the midst of the fire unharmed, Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded. It says here, he stood up in haste. He said to his high officials, was it not three men that we cast bound in the midst of the fire? They replied to the king, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. I think this is a beautiful picture of what happens when we jump, when we take that step, regardless of the circumstances. God is right there with us. Your faith in Christ should never be determined on whether or not God is going to do something or not. Your deliverance from scary circumstances, that's not true faith. True faith means whether you visibly or audibly even get an answer or, or get delivered or not, you're going to stay firm and stick to your belief in Christ, continue to obey him, continue to follow him, knowing that regardless of the result, he will be in the fire right there with you. Sometimes we have to jump to Christ in faith out of the fire. Other times we have to stand in the fire with him. But in either case, he honors your faith. He will be with you. I don't know about you, but I'd rather be with Christ in the fire than without him with the best of what this life has to offer, right? Would you rather be in the fire with Christ than in the pleasures of sin and in the world without him? The best things that life gives you here that that's going to offer you? You've tried that, right? You've been there. You've done that. It tastes disgusting afterwards, doesn't it? Why do we keep going in? It's our sin nature. But there is a point where you can say enough. And that point is where true faith really begins to activate. And then when you take that faith and your object is Christ, you're doing it for him. You're doing it because he's got you would be surprised and shocked on how those chains that have been unlocked literally fall off. We got to pick a side, people. We got to pick the team. If it's Christ's team, then make sure you're living for him full board. Don't want to be neutral. It's a terrible place to be. Jesus warns us against that. Lukewarmness, neutrality, playing both sides of the fence. He gives us such an amazing testimony in Scripture of all these faithful men, especially in Hebrews 11. Follow him by faith despite the apparent sacrifice to be made. Why? Well, it's obvious, right? This is what he did for you. Jesus gave up everything. It's almost parallel here to Moses, right? Obviously, in heaven, there wasn't passing pleasures of sin. But Jesus gave up that heavenly dwelling as the Son of God and came to earth because mankind had violated God's holiness. And we were absolutely done 
We had no escape. All of us were headed for complete, 100% eternal separation from God. Not only that, we were headed for misery of life because we would have no idea who God is. We would have no idea how to follow him. But he sends Jesus Christ to come and live as one of us, humbling himself. Humbling himself to the point of death on a cross, a humiliating death. And he did all of that out of one motive and one motive only. It wasn't for him to get anything because he didn't need anything. It was because of love that he did that. Love for the people and the creation that he made. And so here he presents himself to you. He presents himself to you as a person that can deliver you freedom from sin. He presents himself to you that he says you can have peace with the person who created you. The one and true only God of the Bible. And ultimately, you can have a resurrection. A resurrection that you do not have to wait to experience. A resurrection that comes now. The moment that you come to Christ and say, yes, Lord, I'm a sinner. I can't do this on my own anymore. And it goes for all of us here as, to Christ, as Christians as well who are struggling with this, with this battle with Egypt. I know everyone here, I'm not trying to like, devalue or diminish how difficult it is. Everyone's in a different position. But I don't care what position you're in, you're not in a position where Christ can't reach you. And so this is your message. Come to Christ now. Come to get rid of it. Just get rid of that. Take turn and repent and believe by faith. Scary, but do it. I think it's worth it. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you so much for this, these truths and these realities that are coming from your word. Lord, I pray that if there is anyone here that is on the fence, that they would jump off the fence onto your side. I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here facing these decisions of, these, of, of, of turning back to Egypt fully or sitting on the fence, considering it with their mind going back to Egypt, that they would turn, crucify the flesh, cut the cord, Lord, and be step in, step by faith, step close to you. We thank you that your arms are open and that you're ready to forgive. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.